Welcome to the Classroom Podcast, the book club discussion on classic political philosophy. My name is Eric Nganyange. I'm your host and the student in this class, sitting here with the one and only Professor Ron Klein. Men are perfectly free to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and themselves in any way they like without asking anyone's permission, subject only to limits set by the law of nature. John Locke, Second Treaties of Government. Professor Ron, how are you? I'm doing great, Eric. John Locke. Yes. Who this man was? Well, he was a very interesting guy. Um, He was born... I think around 1627, so that's quite some time ago. And he was born into a very messy political situation there in England. It was, in in essence, the middle of three-part civil war. That determined, I think, a lot of what he wrote. When he was growing up, he ended up at Oxford University, a wonderful place. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. He was a professor. He got interested in medicine. Is that what he was teaching? Well, they didn't have medicine. They didn't have any science courses to speak of in the 1600s. Locke was most likely teaching sort of the standard Oxford fair, which is things like logic and various forms of philosophy and theology. We have to keep in mind that Oxford was was started and was still working on the assumption that they were training people for the church. That was the... That was the purpose. Oh. Yeah. So Cambridge, the same way, when Locke was there and teaching, he would have been teaching sort of the usual curriculum or elements of that. The fact that he got interested in medicine and could later call himself a physician meant that he had studied with practicing physicians, not so much the scholars at Oxford. So it's interesting, too, because that's what got him interested in politics. And here's the way it happened. It's an interesting story. There was uh, a fellow named Anthony Ashley. I can't remember his last name. It'll come to me. He went on to become the first Earl of Shaftesbury. So becoming a noble like an Earl was a very big deal. He was a powerful political figure in these trying times. He also became very ill. So he went up to Bath, Bath, England. Bath became a a great resort place because of these Roman baths, and in particular, the water that would come up from the spring nearby had very high sulfur content, and people rightly thought that was very healthy, so they, they would take baths in it and drink it as well. At any rate, the Earl was there trying to get a cure for this problem. So he needed somebody to bring him bottles of the water so he could drink it on a regular schedule. For some reason, his regular physician was busy. And so John Locke ended up being the guy who, who took the bottles to the Earl. And they hit it off right away because Earl was a very intelligent man. And so obviously was John Locke. So Locke ended up being his physician, and he's the one that figured out exactly what the problem was. Oh, at this time, Locke was already? Already a physician, physician. right? He'd been teaching in Oxford for a while, so Locke knew what had to be done. 
He directed the surgery. I don't think he did the surgery exactly, but he was there directing what should happen. You can see how the Earl liked him after that, right? Here's, he said, this guy saved my life. And besides, he's interesting and intelligent, and so I think I will hire him. And this was not unusual. So since the Earl was a very much politician, he ended up having Locke help him writing documents for him. That's how he got interested. Now, there's a downside to that for him. The English overthrew and ultimately executed a king, Charles I. They were then ruled for 11 years, I think, by Oliver Cromwell. As a matter of fact, he led the forces against the king, and he was successful. At the end of Oliver's life, he wanted to pass the the rule down to his son. So he's become almost like a king. He wants to have a dynasty. He'll have his son, Richard, become the king. Well, Richard wasn't near the man that his father was, as often happens. And the British noble said, no, we're having none of that. And they just told him to get lost, basically, and he disappears from history. And so what do we do now? Well, oddly, they decided, you know, having a king wasn't so bad. This just wasn't a very good one, this Charles I that we executed. So who could we get? Well, if we followed the rule we generally follow, which is eldest son of the previous king should rightfully become the king. And lo and behold, Charles I's eldest son, who had escaped to France just before his father was executed, would have fit the bill. He's the oldest son of the previous king. So they actually called him back to become the king. Now, you can imagine that Charles II was not happy about what they'd done to his father. They tried to uh, tie him up with an agreement that would say he wouldn't you know, try to take revenge on the regicides or otherwise try to get even. And he signed it willingly and then repeatedly didn't follow it. So the important point here is that Locke's employer was really concerned, along with a lot of other nobles, that Charles II had a French wife. It wasn't that she was French so much, but she was Catholic. So there was sort of a, a plot, not well developed, that they would overthrow Charles II. Locke, being an employee, an important employee, speechwriter, political helper of Shaftesbury, saw the handwriting on the wall just in time. They came and arrested Shaftesbury and put him in, in the tower, along with lots of other nobles. Soon as Locke got word, which wasn't long because Oxford's not far away, and he had obviously planned for this, overnight he took all of his manuscripts that he'd been working on, handwritten stuff, he had a person to give it to, gave it to them, and we don't know who it is even to this day. Now, he's going to flee to France, and he does, and someday when he can come back, he'll collect the manuscripts. Well, he spends a goodly amount of time in France and Belgium and the Netherlands, and he's literally being hunted. Uh, British spies of Charles II. Just for his association with Earl. Yeah. Yeah, because they figured, well, maybe blocks the brains behind this, right? Not that Earl wasn't a smart guy, but they knew Locke was doing a lot of the writing for him. And then there was an assassination attempt on Charles and his brother, James, younger brother, 
that failed. It was called the Rye House plot. Locke wasn't coming back when that happened. So he stayed away until after Charles died. His younger brother James was king for a while. In 1689, Locke returned. 1689? Yep. Wow. And he hasn't published a thing. All his manuscripts were in England, and it was a little hard to concentrate on writing when you're running from the... Running for your life. Yeah, that's yeah. it, yep. How long was he on the run? I think it was at least 15 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. When did this book come out? Actually published in late 1689, but the date on it that the printer put on it was 1690. And the first editions were poorly printed, let's say, and things were left out. Locke had a world of trouble putting together true text of what he had said. And so there are several editions really quickly, and it's the kind of thing that scholars worry over a lot about what did he really mean in this version and that version, and how do they relate. But the text we have now is really pretty good, and we don't have to worry about that anymore. And Do you know what was the reaction at that time when the book came out? Well, here's another interesting thing. He didn't put his name on it. Ooh. He denied that he wrote it. <laughs> yeah, because he's still offering a justification to overthrow the king. king yeah. And there was a, there was a the king, king there, but through his whole life, he never admitted publicly that he had written the two treaties. He had told friends, fortunately. Once he had died, they revealed that he was the author. How did he get, and I, I guess I cannot picture this in my mind, how did he get to publish it without his name? Just send it out anonymously? Well, well, they didn't do that. He would go talk to the printer. People who printed books were typically booksellers. So they would combine the two. And what you would do is you go to the bookseller and say, I'm John Locke, and I've got all these manuscripts. Would you like to publish them? And so he'll say, okay, yeah, we can, we can publish these. And Locke would then say, well, but I don't want you to put my name on that one. You can publish it, mm. but I don't want my name on it. And the publisher thought enough of John Locke that he said, okay, we'll do that. And it worked out for the publisher great because he sold a ton of them, yeah. and Locke got no royalties. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah, because his, his name was not on it. Is his that name why? was not on it at all. Wow. So as far as anybody's concerned, it's anonymous. and Belongs to the publisher. Belongs to the publisher. Wow. Now, the book is Second Treaties of Government. There was a first one, right? There was a first one, and it's important. The first treatise is fascinating. I would urge anybody to read it. What it is, the predominant theory of government at that point was that kings rule by divine right. That is to say, God chose them. Why we should believe that kings rule by divine right. It's a biblical argument, basically. In Genesis, of course, God says to Adam, you have dominion over the earth. So Fillmore will say, well, see, that just proves that we should be ruled by somebody chosen by God. That's the basis and an understandable basis for having the divine right of kings. The reason that Locke wants to argue against that is that's fine. That explains why we are obligated to follow the king's rules, because essentially they're approved by God. But what happens if we need to rebel against the king? What justification could we have? Because if the divine right of kings is true, we're rebelling against, against God. God. Yeah. Right. And that's no good. Mm. Right. Nobody's going to buy that argument. 
Remember what's going on again in England and why I went through it is they'd already rebelled against Charles I and executed him on top of that. So how could you justify that? So the argument Locke is trying to make against Filmer is to knock out the divine right of kings argument right at the beginning. Don't want to believe that. So what he says is, in the first three is, yeah, I've already shown that that theory is wrong. Mm. So that clears the way for him to say there's a possibility of rebellion. Because you wouldn't be rebelling against God, you're just rebelling against this human, human being, being that's calling himself a king. Wow. Yes. Wow. Now let's let's jump into the second treatise. Why did he write this book? The English people are in the business of overthrowing their kings during this <laughs> yeah, century. It, it looks like. And so it would be really nice if he could provide a justification. Bless his heart because if you read the Declaration of Independence, you see a lot of Lockean oh, language yeah. in there. It's it's Locke who first said life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. happiness. It's Locke who first said a, a train of abuses, you know, that leads to this. And so clearly they've picked up the founders have what Locke was trying to say, which is smart way of doing things. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Exactly. If somebody else already did a job, just pick it up and refine it and move on. Yes, exactly. And yeah. and it seems that that's clearly what they were doing, which is not to say there weren't some other influences. Let's jump into second treaties of government. I would like to focus on a few concepts here, since some of the other concepts we already covered in a previous episode. I want to discuss law of nature, state of war, slavery in the eyes of John Locke, and the dissolution of government. What is the law of nature, according to Locke? The law of nature is reason. Now, that's kind of odd, if you think about it. We'd expect for the law of nature, he would say, well, those are the things that God has already implanted in us in some way that we know right from wrong, so to speak. And so we just naturally will do the right thing because we know because God's implanted that in us. We expect that from him. And he will say that later, that the law of nature is also given by God. But he says initially that it's reason. And why does he say that? Because he points out before that, that all people are equal in the sense that they all have the same faculties. The faculties he's talking about are like imagination, reason, right, which everybody has, Judgment, the sort of full panoply of mental faculties that we understand. By saying it's reason and that everybody has reason, it means that everybody can figure it out. Now, he doesn't seem to take into account very much the fact that, you know, you reason really well and I reason really poorly and we might come to different answers. So how does he deal with that? He says, well, you know, there'll be those situations And so what we do is we look at the revealed word of God. And it'll be the same as what we would have discovered by reason, which makes sense, because if we reason to the truth, it has to be the same as what God tells us, because God's always going to tell us the truth. And so everybody can know what the law of nature is, and they must follow it. On chapter 3, the state of war. Oh, yes. Talk to me about the state of war. A state of war can exist side by side with the state of nature. The, the chapters kind of next to each other, too. Yes, yeah. in, intentionally. 
So, but you can also be in the state of war in a society that's already fully developed. It's a situation where you're threatened and you have no place to turn immediately. You and I could be in a state of war right now. And how is that possible? Well, here we are. We're in this beautiful jitters, enjoying ourselves, having this talk. But it's closed to the public. And if you decide uh, you want to make some remark and I take offense and I get out a knife or something, if I just got the knife out, that would be threatening. You also can't easily get away from me and call the police. So we'd be in a state of war. And that's not a good state to be in ever. Where we're having these unfortunate riots going on in different places around the country, they are virtually a state of war. But it is a good example of what the state of war would be like. Yeah, because one thing he put it in there is about the thief that comes in your house. The fact that the thief might not kill you, that's not the point, according to Locke. The idea this thief got you under their control, they put you in a state of war, and they're capable of doing anything else. Yeah, that's really a critical point. I think as a society, we've lost that. He said, like, like you have reviewed here, if anybody gets you under their control, even if they're there, just they're planning just to rob you of your coat, that's a state of war. If you're in a state of war, you're entitled to kill the person that put you there. Mm-hmm. Not just defend yourself, kill. And he says that may seem strange, but as you said, think about it. If you're under their control, if they decide, well, your coat's nice, but I really want your shoes and your wallet and stuff. To get that, I think the easiest thing is just to kill you, and they can because you're under their control. Mm-hmm. So this has played out interestingly since you would have trouble justifying these days if somebody gets you under their control, say they have a knife, and they just want your money, your wallet, and your responses to pull your trusty revolver out of your pocket and kill them, they would say that that's an unequal response to the threat. The state of war generally is to be threatened and no, have no ability to get help. So you can quickly, even in our highly developed civilization, go from a nice peaceful time to being in a state of war, which is terrifying. He jumped right from that to slavery. Locke did not believe state of being a slave is state of nature. Because everybody's equal. Nobody, since we're all equal, we can't mistreat other people. He says that equality should lead us to value others and treat them kindly and help them out. All of that stuff. Can't, you can't do that. Yeah. His argument against slavery, just in addition to everybody's equal, so you shouldn't do that, is that you're no longer your own possession. Mm. If you can't control your activity, remember the first definition of the state of nature, you can do pretty much whatever you want as long as you don't break the law of nature. But if you're a slave, you can't do that. And so you've given up possession of yourself. Yeah. On the last chapter, he's talking about dissolution of government. Talk to me about that. He seems forward. He said there's situations that dissolution of government is proper. Yeah, and that's the whole point of all this book. Mm. And the essence of that is... You and I have agreed with each other to be be a society, okay? And you and I agree that we're going to have a government. 
So, so he, we, he pounds on that. Oh a yeah, lot. and it's a it's a contract. It's a contract, right? And the contract is: we will obey you in exchange for we'll give up our right to redress wrong done to us and to provide justice. If that's the contract, and the government is not properly providing correction of wrongs and justice, we have an entire right to leave the contract because they've broken it. Likewise, for our part, we have said, well, as long as you provide justice, we'll be obedient. Basically, his definition of a tyrant is person who backs out of the contract. If somebody backs out of a contract, it's just standard law. You don't have to so associate with them at all. Mm. Everything's off the table. Yeah. Right? And, and revert, revert back to that state of nature. To, yes, and then we can choose another kind of and government yeah. or other people in the government. This is There's a part of the Declaration of Independence that people don't read because the top part is so cool. But he lists long train of abuses, locks words even. This is what King George III has done that we know he's a tyrant. It's not just one thing. There's a whole list. I And since he's broken the contract, we're entitled to separate from him and go our own way. We're going to secede. Why, why do you think this book is classic and it's still influential today? Well, obviously, there's the impact it had on our founding by the founding fathers. It also is, it's really a brilliantly written book. It takes a little while to get used to the writing style. At least to me, it didn't take more than a chapter to get used to that. And it's, it's so tightly woven and so many concepts in use that then sort of fit. I, when I started reading it a couple of weeks ago, I got out a notepad and I was just going to start writing down things like law of nature or state of nature, state of war, concept that he was putting out there. I think it only took me two pages to have 24 terms that he had put in there, all of which are fascinating, all of which needed arguments. And there are counter arguments too, to a lot of them. I think it's fair to say it's the best coherent explanation of modern liberal political thought. Liberal, not in the sense of the left wing of politics, like the liberals today. Now, if, uh, if I have to talk to the young person today and I tell them, here, grab this book and read, and they ask me, what's the relevance? That's what 1690 book. What's the relevance to my life I'm living today? What do I tell them? Well, when we refer to current events mm -hmm. in relationship to what Locke was saying, we were talking particularly about how do you react to being put under the total control of anybody yeah. else. So as I was reading through it anyway, I could think of current examples for all, every chapter. Long, long, overly long, in my opinion, chapter on why you need to obey your mother as well as your father. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That almost bores you to tears, though. I just keep pounding you with that. And so why would he do that? Well, this is another shot at Robert Filmer. Robert Filmer, defending the divine right of kings, says... You have a duty to honor and obey your father from the Ten Commandments. But he leaves out, and it is in the Ten Commandments, your father and mother. So that's a long chapter on how Robert Filmer really screwed up. And he did. There's no question. You know, pick a chapter. You, you can find current relevance for all of them because we are so much based on his thought. Mm. Professor, thank you very much for your very, time. Thank you. Well... 
That was Professor Ron Klein. And my name is Eric Nganyange. Thank you for listening to the Classroom Podcast. Until next time, be safe.